You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I'm really excited to be joined by my friend, Steve Denler. Steve and I originally met over a decade ago when we were students in Jerusalem, Israel, and then years after that, we ended up at the same graduate school in Seattle, Washington. And I had to have Steve on the podcast because he is a fascinating person. He's a mental health therapist. He fronts a post-emo rock band heads a pseudo church that discusses theology over beer, writes psychotheological discourse online, owns a web development screen printing company, runs a secret coffee bar, which we do talk about at the end of the episode, and maybe most importantly, loves cats, which we here at Rua Space definitely appreciate. Now, our conversation did run long. We hadn't talked in a while, and so we really got into some good stuff. And so ultimately, I did cut our conversation conversation down for time to make it a little bit more of a manageable listening experience. We're going to pick up in the middle of our conversation because Steve has done some really amazing work around reframing sin, seeing it as a interpersonal issue that affects not just our relationship with God, but with ourselves, each other, and creation. So we dig into Genesis 1 through 3, talking about sin's relationship to vulnerability and shame. And he helps us see it in a way that I think is ultimately even more life-giving than some of the ways we might have been taught about or thought about sin in the past. And so we do pick up in the beginning of the conversation. We had been talking about his experience as a therapist walking through the pandemic and the disconnect in the culture at the moment. So that's the part of the conversation you'll begin to hear. And then we dig into Steve's thoughts around reframing sin, ultimately coming to talk about the atonement. Now, we did not dig into the atonement as much as we want. So this is part one of our conversation, and we are going to be releasing part two next week. But friends, I had a blast recording this conversation with Steve. I hope that it is a blessing to you as well, that in some way it challenges you encourages you and helps you to see sin in just a little bit of a different light in a way that helps you walk in love to even greater extent. So friends, here's my conversation with Steve Denler. Here, I'm going to sort of start to invite the theologian out of you, if you can, or maybe the the cultural exegete, if you will. And I, I feel like we're not just scared of each other because of COVID, but over mm. the past year, we've gone through this insanely divisive political, racial, um, geographical divide as well, where we're more scared of each other than ever. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. being stuck online hasn't helped, right? Because social media is literally built to only show you people like you, right? To only show you people you agree with. And so are you noticing that disconnect play out? Maybe not just in therapy, but to start to explore what are you reflecting on that at all? Are you having any awareness of that or thoughts around this disconnect that's also happening? Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, and I want to guide that to sin eventually because you have uh, some amazing yeah. thoughts on that. So it'll segue as well, but. Absolutely. I think, and I think that does segue well, like culturally, we are a very bifurcated country at the moment. Um, And, and yes, it spreads out outside of America, but specifically within America, we're absolutely just divided. Um, 
And I think everyone has an experience of it in some way or another, whether or not you find yourself political, um, there's more and more within this culture that positions on things feel very line in the sand. Like there's, there's no, there's no space for holding differences of opinions and, and that being okay. It's, it's no, there's one right answer and it's, you're either on this side or you're on that side. Um, and in large part, um, I, I would venture, I would argue that that is, uh, our human desire to be safe. Um, and safety comes in control and control is, is kind of this, like, if, if I know that I'm right, then I feel safe. Mm. Um, if I don't know that I'm right, then there's this ambiguity and there's this vulnerability, um, of, of not knowing. And I, I definitely believe that as humans, we exist on a spectrum of vulnerability and control, um, relationship or isolation, life or death, like everything, all the decisions that we make are either going to move us into vulnerability, which is moving us into relationship, which is moving us into life. Because as I said earlier, I do believe that our bodies, our, our humanness, we are wired both theologically, psychologically, biologically, you can argue in any of those realms that we as humans are made for relationship. Um, and so, but authentic relationship is vulnerable. Authentic relationship allows the other person to fully show up. Um, and it's that dance of giving and receiving. Um, but authentic relationship is terrifying. Authentic relationship is dangerous because you open yourself up to being hurt. Um, and so oftentimes in the fear of, of being hurt, we move towards control. We move towards uh, isolation. Like the safest place that you can be is alone because there's no one else there to hurt you. Um, but to move into isolation is also to move away from what you're wired, where you're wired to experience life. So you're moving towards death. Yeah. Well, and, you, and so yeah. when you, yeah. And so when we live within this bifurc bifurcated culture, we're actually moving away from each other um, in, into these realms that make us feel safe. Cause we're surrounded by people that believe the same thing, but, but our posture is defensive. Our posture is the other is dangerous. I think, is it Brene Brown who talks about vulnerability makes us unsafe, but at any time, but it, vulnerability is also the only door to like joy and happiness and love and full expression. And so I think that this starts to get in, I think to how you, talk about and think about sin, right? Which I know you wrote about it extensively in the past and you're working on writing more about that now, but it, it reminds me of, of Adam and Eve, right? However we read yeah. the story, it's the story where they were naked and in front of each other, no need to hide from each other, from themselves, from God, from creation. But as soon as they tried to write the story themselves, it's like, oh, we got to cover up because if you see who I fully am, you may not love me. And so to mm -hmm. go with just people who are like you, who it's like, oh yeah, you can see the parts of me I want you to see and therefore I'm okay. But anyone else who's different, different skin color, different, you know, they're from a different country, different religion, different politics. Well, they might see or invite something that is unsafe. And so I need to hide. Mm -hmm. But when we saw that, as you said, it cuts off the life, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and in those moments, it's that space of when you when you encounter something that's unfamiliar, whether it's cultural, uh, something that that's not like you, um, there's that question of, am I going to be 
received well? Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be safe? Uh, and so that's that part of us that's just like that, which is unfamiliar, we push away. And, and as you, as you named, like, absolutely. I think one of like Genesis one through three is my favorite. Like that's my jam because there's so much packed into those three chapters, whether you, whether you look at Genesis one through three is like an authentic account of the way the world was created or just, uh, humans trying to give words to what it means to be human. Like there's so much truth found within those chapters and as you named in the sense of like yeah adam and eve at the start uh they were naked and they were not ashamed so shame is actually inversely defined that that to not feel shame is to be physically vulnerable like the the permission within our bodies that i am able to be completely bare and trust that the other person will care for me well um, but i also believe that that also pushes that i can also be emotionally vulnerable with this person uh with my, my wants, my needs, my desires, my preferences, my opinions, this really authentic vulnerability with the other, believing that, yeah, no, I can be completely bare, completely raw with this person and trust uh, that I will be seen as okay, uh, that I will be loved, that I will be cared for, that there is space for me here. And then when you do have uh, in Genesis three, suddenly their eyes being opened and them hiding from each other, suddenly you have this realization of like, oh, shame has just entered into the picture because that which was defined as not shame, vulnerability, no longer exists. Now they're hiding from each other. The only two humans in existence are hiding <laughs> from each other. Um, and it's that space of suddenly there's this internal belief that I don't know. I'm uncertain. I'm unsure if this other person will care for me well. If this other person will see me, see my body, see my emotions, see my wants and needs and say, yeah, they're welcome here. And so we protect ourselves and we protect ourselves by seeking control and that which we can control. And that's moving us towards isolation. Yeah. And then on the spectrums you were talking about, it also then moves us away from life toward death, right? Which is then what mm -hmm. we see in that story. So let's talk about reframing sin because... I think you're really onto something important here. And this idea then, because of course that story is connected to that, right? That it's connected mm -hmm. to, you know, I define it as they decided to write the story themselves. They basically didn't trust mm -hmm. God's story was good for them. And they wanted to be their own God, right? I want to write my own story. I have control of the narrative myself and it invited death. But we often name sin as the thing that caused that. So can you sort of enter us into your reframing of what sin is? Because I think it's I think it's actually deeply rooted in everything we've been talking about so far. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, I would boil down that sin ultimately is the mistrust of relationship. It's that inward turn within ourselves that moves us away from vulnerability and into control. And, and the important thing about that is that sin isn't substantive, like sin isn't a thing. Sin isn't like, oftentimes we, we grow up internalizing that sin is like some disease or some like thing that we throw into a bag and we carry this giant bag of our sins that we can do nothing about. They're like barnacles. Hmm. Um, and when we move away from understanding that there, like sin isn't a thing, uh, sin is, is, is the word that we're using for that mistrust. Um, then, then suddenly sin becomes something that we can do something with. 
Um, and so I think the important thing in kind of my reframing of this uh, is, is really kind of looking at, I think, again, Genesis one through three is phenomenal. Um, and whoever wrote it is brilliant uh, <laughs> at, at how they did it because you have, you have Genesis one, which is kind of a more poetic rhythmic account of creation in which God is the center focus. Like you have this story that's that trying to, that wants you in the in the outset of chapter one to understand who is this God, who is this divine being that is creating the world? Because Genesis one ends with "Let us make humans in our image," and so with the climax of Genesis one ending with "Let us make humankind in our image." we have to understand who God is to know what image these human beings are being made of. Mm. And so you have Genesis one that's completely focused on, okay, here's this creative being that from the very outset is, is defined as plural. Like the word used in, in Genesis one is that God is Elohim, which literally means gods in the plural, but within Jewish tradition is also held as the name for the one being. And so that's this interesting kind of interplay of like the word that we use for God is plural. Um, and then just that funness of, of you've got God who creates uh, through the word, which in John says the word was Jesus. And then you have the spirit hovering over the water. So you already kind of have this introduction to there's this like Trinitarian relational thing that we call mm -hmm. gods uh creating this creation and so you have god is inherently relational you have god is as creative and and creating this this space that that holds beauty that's pleasing to the eyes which like when i read that i'm like there's the only purpose of that is for joy like mm -hmm. you could have a mundane gray world and it served the purpose of survival but to have something that's pleasing to the eye it's like that's for joy and so you have genesis one which i kind of look at is like you have this story where creation is created at the end and so you have this god who's kind of like pre preparing the world for his guests and then handing the world over and be like enjoy this space and so you have god who's inviting uh and and then you move into genesis two which is more narrative based but you also have humans being created first you have this empty kind of voidless world and then you have humans which in genesis one is created at the outset as plural like humankind male and female created at plural at the same time and then genesis two you have a narrative in which humanity is first created as a singularity and genesis two really kind of hits home at this is what happened like the absence of this core relational aspect of humanity mm. because humans are now the centerpiece, the center focus of the chapter. So you have Genesis one, God is a plurality who creates humans as a plurality in order to experience life. Genesis two, you have God creating a human and lavishing that human with creation, but then finding that that human is still deficient in singularity. And mm. so God tries to like meet that relational need within that human that's wired within that that being and finds that animals like all of these other things that we kind of throw ourselves at to make ourselves happy 
isn't enough. And so then God creates a second human and then humanity becomes a plurality. And then that's, that's where life kind of begins. But then you move into chapter three. And so it's really important to recognize Genesis one and Genesis two really hits home at the fact that humans are made to be in relationship. Like that's so central that they tell the story twice to make that really important because then in Genesis three, you immediately get thrown into the, this conflict that enters. You have the serpent talking to Adam and Eve, uh, questioning them about this, this rule that God kind of put God's like, Hey, enjoy everything, but just don't eat from this tree. And then you have the serpent who's kind of like, did God really like say you shouldn't touch, like you shouldn't eat like, and, and there's this moment where, the humans suddenly are being questioned about what they believe Mm -hmm. about what they understand. Um, And so it's this moment where doubt steps into their, into their psyche, into their being. It's, it's the serpents kind of pushing on, is God actually taking care of you? Is God keeping you from something good? Like, can you trust God? And so there's this moment where suddenly the humans who are living in an authentic relationship with each other, authentic relationship with God, authentic relationship with creation, suddenly gets introduced to doubt. Suddenly gets introduced to, wait a second, like, is God keeping something good from us? And if Mm -hmm. God's keeping something good from us, can we trust God uh, in what he's inviting us into and telling us to do? And so then as the story goes, like we learned, like they eat the fruit. Um, but the important thing to note, like Augustine even says, there's nothing inherently wrong with this fruit. Like God, God in his creation created everything good. And even this tree was good. Um, that Augustine will say that sin is this, is the, is this defectus of the will away from God towards pride, which I, I argue doesn't go far enough because pride itself is, is a relational breakdown. Like we, mm-hmm. we become really self-confident within ourselves to a pride state when we don't trust that the others will care for us well. And then we just kind of start relying on ourselves and then, yeah, then, yeah, no, I don't need you. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Um, and so the important thing to notice in Genesis three is sin wasn't the action of eating the fruit. The action of eating the fruit was the manifestation of a prior turn within them that the moment that they decided I don't trust God. That was sin because that was a movement out of relationship towards self-control. Like mm. if, if God can't be trusted vulnerably, then I need to do something for myself. Um, and, and I think that's like, I love the term that they used that their eyes were opened because when I read Genesis three, what changes between before them eating the, the fruit and then after eating the fruit, like in a sense, nothing really changes other than their awareness. Mm. Like God still comes out and is just like, Hey, I want to hang out. Um, but there's this inward turn within them where they suddenly don't trust God. And if, if God's can't be trusted, can I trust you? Can I trust this other human? And so they hide, they cover themselves. Suddenly there's this, Oh, like I need to protect myself from the other. Um, and, and it just splinters because once one person doesn't trust, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, there must be a reason. Like, maybe I shouldn't trust you either. Um, and so that's, 
that's where I found kind of base this description of, well, sin ultimately is mistrust of relationship because sin in Genesis three is the movement away from everything of Genesis one and Genesis two in the sense that, Hey, you're wired to experience life in its fullest in relationship with each other, with, with the divine and with creation. And Genesis three is this moment where they start moving away from everything from each other, from God themselves too. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, you talked about earlier, we're disconnected from our own body. I mean, I think we can root that right here. There's shame as much as it's an interpersonal thing. It's an internal issue as well. They don't, they don't even fully trust themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't trust creation either. Well, and, 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 you know, this is, this to me starts to get into the whole, this, this phrase that sin separates us from God, I've started mm-hmm. to really question the meaning behind that, right? Because you pointed out that God is like, hey, I'm ready to hang out. So it's the sin didn't separate God from them in the sense that, oh, I can't be near you mm-hmm. now. But it separated yep. them in the sense of, I don't trust you. Don't come close to me on mm-hmm. their end. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're pointing out is actually really huge because the whole rest of scripture, like one, I love looking at Genesis one through three is, is, as a cold open. So like within movies, like the cold open are the scenes that happen before the initial title and the, and the credits, like mm-hmm. the initial credits. And oftentimes it's the scene that really gives you important information for the rest of the story. Um, because after Genesis three, suddenly you begin the narrative of humanity. Like you have the narrative history of like, this is, this is us trying to make sense of toils. This is us trying to make sense of war. This is us trying to make sense of, of why the world is the way it is. And, and so Genesis one through three kind of proves to be a really important kind of starting point of like, Hey, let's understand, like you're made for relationship and everything that we see around us is going to be birthed out of this move towards self-control. It's going to be moved towards, this kind of breakdown of relationship and you have the rest of scripture, a God constantly pursuing. Mm-hmm. So, so in the definition of, well, sin is the mistrust of, of relationship. It's this movement away. Um, yeah. God, the divine does not engage in sin because the good God does not engage in this process of moving away. God is always inviting. God is always pursuing. And, and sin is this space of, of us moving away from God us mistrusting God, us mistrusting each other, us mistrusting creation. And, and even if you look at the, the, the curses that happen, quote unquote curses in, in Genesis three, um, it's interesting to then look at it through the framework of, well, okay, if sin isn't a thing, like sin isn't a disease that suddenly just ruined all of creation, uh, a disease that we pass down in our genetic code to each other. Um, but, but a mistrust then you can actually read these curses as kind of natural consequences of the breakdown of relationship, the breakdown of humanity with, with, with the animal realm. Like suddenly we don't trust serpents. Like I don't trust if I'm going to, if I pass the snake, I don't trust that that snake's going to be kind to me. So, so there's enmity between humanity and the serpent and, and arguably then the whole, whole wildlife world. And we get glimpses of, of reconciled creation where 
you have humans engaging with creation with animals in ways that's just like, oh, like they are able to interact with humans in in a respectful way. And mm. and also and then you've got uh, the curses for Eve are very much this space of like, yeah, pain and childbirth and longing to kind of be connected with your husband, but he's going to rule over you. So it's all of this breakdown of, okay, what does relationship look like with your partner? If when there's, when there's not authentic trust with each other, it's like, yeah, the process of, of raising children, the process of trying to, to, to feel loved and cherished by your partner, there's going to be a breakdown because uh, a husband trying to rule over his wife is going to be control. Like I need to be in control of this family in order to feel safe within myself. Cause I do not trust my family. And then you've got the curses for Adam, which is just like the uh, toil in the field. Like our mistrust of creation uh, causes problems. Uh, when we, when we do not care for creation, uh, in a, in a vulnerable and trusting way that creation is going to do what it's supposed to do. Then we try to control creation. And when we control creation, we actually deplete it. And we, I mean, we run into all of the issues that we currently find ourselves in with, with climate change. And, and I mean, anyone who's ever tried to garden, yeah. I mean, if I, if <laughs> I, if I show you my house plants right now, they're all dead. I, I do not care for my plants well. I have a similar problem. I'll never, you know, I, I feel bad. I'll never forget. I was interning for a pastor once who went away on uh, like paternity leave. And he's like, oh yeah, can you, can you water my plants while you're gone? Oh man, I tell you, I feel bad. I didn't think about it one more time until he got back. <laughs> and our first oh, meeting no. back, he's walk. I come into his office for the first time in months and there he is watering his plants and they're all just brown and dead. So I, I, I know where you're going <laughs> with that. But you know, this, this also <laughs> to me helps us sort of think about the the teachings and the commands throughout the rest of scripture, right? And how Jesus mm -hmm. can boil down the law and the prophets to love God and love mm -hmm. others. That's that sometimes we, you know, whether you're a follower of Jesus or, you know, wherever you are in your life journey, I think it's easy to look at the sort of commands or invitations, teachings of God and be like, man, some of those are arbitrary. Like it's just do this, don't do that as if they don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. But the question might always return to then, how is any action, which then allows us to sort of work through other issues that maybe aren't in scripture, does it build or break down relationship? Does it, yep. does it, does it offer justice or does it break down something of humanity? Does it bring people closer together or further apart? Which I wonder even, you know, in our current, in our current pandemic situation, political climate, world environment, you know, where we want to debate on all these levels, it's like, maybe we just return to the question of, does this bring me closer to others or push them further away? Yep. No, I think that's, I mean, as you named, like Jesus defining everything is I love God, love others. Like everything is encapsulated in that. And then you've got Paul who goes even further and he just says, just love. <laughs> like really, if you, if you just love, then you're fulfilling the, the law, like you're, you're fulfilling what it means to be human because to love is to be in vulnerable relationship with each other and in vulnerable relationship with each other. When you have two people authentically caring for each other, then that's life. And, 
and yeah, you can read scripture. You could look at it. It's, it's, it's so it's fun. It's, it's really fun kind of shifting, shifting sin into this relational realm, because then you, you see it in everything, even when it comes to like, give us Kings. Like we don't want to trust like vulnerability with you is, is terrifying because can I trust? So give us Kings, which gives us control. Uh, and, and then you have, uh, Sermon on the Mount, where where Jesus kind of progressively keeps going into, stop looking at it in the action, mm. like stop stop looking at well the only thing that I need to avoid is not doing something, uh, not lusting after after right. someone, not right. not coveting someone like this. Like Jesus then pulls it back and she's like, no, like I tell you, if you do it in your mind, then you are sinning. And he's not saying that that you're again sin is like this substantive thing you're like breaking yourself down or or adding another sin to your bag but he's saying like when you mistrust the other like that will show up in action. Mm. And even if it doesn't show up in action your body is moved away has turned away from the other. And if yeah. you move your body away from the other then then you're going to experience death. So I think God is actually very apt in naming like hey if you if you mistrust me and you eat this fruit like you're going like you're going to experience death and and because we do like that we experience death daily in isolation in in not feeling seen or known or cared for or loved by the people that we're around like that is heartbreaking and it tears us apart um and so to to view scripture through this lens of yeah Israel constantly moving away from God and not trusting him and moving towards idols. Like the important thing, even looking at idols, like idols are a God that we create so that we have control hmm. so that we have a greater understanding of give me a checklist of what I need to do. It's like, okay, this, this idol requires this. And she's like, I can know where I stand because of what I've done. So we become the older brother in the, the prodigal son story of I've done everything. Therefore I deserve as opposed to the younger brother of this invitation of like, no, like it's not about what you do. You're just always welcome. Yeah. You're always invited into relationship. Which is another perfect example. The father runs out to both mm -hmm. there, you know, dishonoring or risking dishonor upon himself to offer that invitation, mm -hmm. which to me then raises the question. And again, we could spend, you know, multiple days on this, but how do you understand oh, yeah. Jesus' death and the cross then in this understanding of sin? Like yeah. maybe a little bit of atonement here, if, if you can. <laughs> yeah. It might be a little too heretical for this. Podcast, <laughs> no, um, no, no. <laughs> you know, I wrestle, I really do. I wrestle with the cross um, and I wrestle with the cross because I've always had a problem with the cross because the sacrificial system was adopted from pagan culture. Hmm. It, it like its origins were in pagan culture. And so, and, and God, and so again, it's kind of like this, well, give us a King so we can be like the other cultures, like give us these things so we can be like the other cultures. And, and I see this sacrificial system again, like this desire to have control, like give us something that lets us know that we're doing something uh, to, to be okay. And, and, and God is, is gracious and, 
and gives us these things in, in frameworks that hopefully draw us into uh, authentic relationship. Like you have the prophets who are like, I don't care about your sacrifice. I care about a repentant heart. Like, so, so throughout scripture, you have this system, but then you also seem to have this narrative that's just like the system is actually pointless. Like it's the, it's what it's supposed to be doing. It's what it's supposed to be inviting your body into. So like Mm. spiritual disciplines, like spiritual disciplines are all about bringing you into a space where you become someone where this is uh, authentic. And so let's do something that doesn't feel authentic to me on the hopes that I become someone who does it. Um, And on the hopes that I become someone who loves better, uh, who's able to slow down, uh, who isn't driven by doing and control. Um, And so so I have always wrestled with the cross because you have Jesus entering into a a pagan system Mm. on this Christian idea that suddenly something shifts because you have, you've got the Ephesians verse of like, you are, you are saved by grace through faith so that no, no one can boast. Like we herald that as you can do nothing about your salvation. You can do nothing about your redemption because you have a disease that's in need of a cure. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is the only one that can, that can cure you from this. But then you've got Paul and Philippians saying like, work out your salvation and fear and trembling like this, this invitation of like, we seem to be a participant in salvation. And all of Jesus's ministry is this invitation into, Hey, the kingdom of heaven is here now. Hmm. Like you can experience life now, but it's by changing how we approach each other and, and engage in relationship. And, and so the atonement on the cross, like I see it in one sense as, as a gift that of the divine kind of being like, okay, this system isn't actually benefiting you anymore. And what's the best way to get rid of a system like let's let's become a perfect sacrifice so that no more sacrifices are necessary so mm-hmm. you have divine kind of being like hey like let's get rid of this like let's get back to uh communing with the divine let's get back to relationship with the divine let's move this intermediary aspect um and i also see it as i mean the the story of jesus in 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 incarnation and and the god going to the extent of like you have scripture of the divine pursuing humanity like constantly pursuing humanity right after right after eating the fruit god is there uh Mm. and then then they're out of eden and the very next chapter you have god there um god enters into the field and talks to cain like like nothing changes god is always the same like god is always present uh, pressing after uh, us moving away um, to the extent of God coming into human form in Jesus and being like, Hey, like I'm here, like, let's fix some things. Like let's, <laughs> let's get back to how you're wired. Um, and, and then you've got the cross and religious systems and religious systems are based on control. Um, and I mean, Jesus's number one enemy in throughout the gospels is the religious system kind of calling them out for, the burdens that they place on others and um, how they, how they do the actions, but those actions aren't represented in their lives. Like their bodies, the way they orient towards people don't reflect the actions Um, to the point where they put him on a cross because he's a threat. Um, Well, within the system you were talking about, it just reminds me then too of, you know, when, when we go to kill God, 
essentially, mm-hmm. God still doesn't run away. Like God yeah. still doesn't say, okay, now I'm finally going to walk away from you. Or now I am going to go ahead and call in all these angels, right? They're just going to slaughter mm-hmm. everybody, protect me, bring yeah. me off the cross, whatever. Like I'm going to go ahead and turn into the human system. There almost seems part of it to me is a wholesale denial of violence as a means to getting peace or running away as mm-hmm. a means to gaining peace. There's sort of the ultimate, you know, joining in our suffering and not running away from us and saying, Hey, mm-hmm. I'm with you in it and I can bring you through it. And then, you know, the resurrection is, you know, yeah, yeah. Even death can't ultimately separate us, you know? So yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously like I, I appreciate you kind of on the spot going into all your atonement theories. Cause I know obviously you can't in a few minutes give <laughs> all, all the, you know, you, you went to JUC with me, right? Same, same school. Yeah. We know the 70 faces of Torah, right? And so there's infinite depth, but I appreciate you beginning to engage it. Cause I know it's complicated mm-hmm. and I know there's, there's some beautiful ways to see it. I think we sometimes miss yeah. today when we simplify it too much. Well, and I and I, I appreciate that that like the seventy phases of Torah, like every we are meaning making humans, and we're trying to make sense of the divine. We're trying to make sense of existence. We're trying to make sense of what it means to be human. And so, everything like I hold I hold all of the atonement theories in this way of just like there's truth here. Mm-hmm. There's there's something here that's that's giving word to the divine that's giving word to this unfathomable event and so yeah when it comes to jesus on the cross there's part of me that's just like i don't know like something happens here Mm. um and Mm. i don't know and i don't think it's this i don't think it's this i don't think it's this but i also i think it's this i think it's this and i think it's this (laughs) um that's why you have Paul when he keeps trying to talk about, like, make sense of the cross. He uses all of this different language and different realms kind of being like, well, it's kind of like this and it's kind of like this. It's like, but none of it captures it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's there's something really destructive when we lock ourselves into, well, this is this is it. Like, this is the this is what the cross meant. This is this is like there's no other way. This is the only way to view it. And it's just like, no, we're limited by our language. Like we're limited by the way in which we can define things. And then like, I'm never going to limit my four-year-old self, like ask four-year-old self me. It's just like, what happened on the cross? Like this and it's like, that's it. Give, give humans eternity to be able to expand on language and learn more and more and more. And another hundred years, we're going to have a different understanding of the atonement. And another thousand years, we're going to have a different understanding of the atonement. And it's just going to create more words and more truth and more understanding to that, which cannot be defined. It goes back to control again. I mean, that's to return to the Mm -hmm. whole thing. Is it vulnerability or control? And when we have one theory that is the one based on our reading, we have control, we feel safe. Again, Mm -hmm. we push away the other. When we hold things in tension with some mystery, there's vulnerability, but I think the vulnerability isn't just to others. There's a vulnerability to God in that because ultimately, you know, throughout this conversation, right? We talk about Trinity. We talk about God as creator and spirit and word. But as you said, those words are like signposts, not the thing itself. So anytime it's like we nail it down, it's this one thing. I almost think we've Mm -hmm. created an idol and we've missed the real thing. But when we can hold it with tension and some mystery, and then we get to dance, right? But then we're vulnerable. I, I don't know. To me, it circles right back to what you're saying. That spectrum to me makes a lot of sense because 
I think you can place a lot of different things on there and realize, hey, when you can hold things in tension, creatively engage it, you're vulnerable, but you're also then open to God coming as God's self, not as God made in our image. Well, absolutely. And the interesting thing is that when you when you put it on the spectrum like that, you can have actions that on one hand can be sin in the sense that I'm using this action in a way that mistrusts the other or, or seeks to control. And you can have that same action as not sin. Hmm. Like one, one thing's like uh, Miroslav Volf has, has a book. Um, oh, I can't remember the title of it, but it's, uh, it's like on giving, like it's something about giving. Um, and he writes this really great way of putting like gift giving that and this and this difficulty that we hold like if someone gives us a gift then we feel obligated to give her a gift in return and mm. but if we but if we give a gift in return then we're not actually receiving a gift um and if we give a gift with the expectation of something in return then we're not giving a gift like and so it's the sense of like you can give a gift in a sinful way and again placing it on the spectrum of relationship and control like that you can give a gift in such a way to control the other, which is a mistrust of the relationship. It's a, like, I'm doing this in order to secure something for myself, to secure safety for myself. Mm. Cause I do not trust that without it, uh, the other person will just join me in relationship in a way and hold that desire of mine. So we can give a gift in a sinful way that moves us out of relationship. And we can also give a gift that actually moves us into relationship. And so when you remove sin from the thing, from the, from the action, then everything gets kind of put out there. It's just like, well, this could be good. This could be good. This could be bad. Like there's not an action that's just, well, this action is sin. It's like, no, it's what did that action manifest? Like, what is it manifesting? Because mm, um, yeah, you can control people with gifts. <laughs> you can, mm -hmm. and I mean, I think this is what Jesus is even getting at maybe with judging, right? And pearls before swine that in, in certain contexts, the same thing you can say to a loved one to help guide them, like, like something my wife could say to me that's loving, that might be taken as judgmental to someone else. We can use those same things to control our kids, for example, or to control mm -hmm. our neighbor with shame. And with, so it's like in different relationships, even the way we engage mm -hmm. one another, because it's in love, I accept it differently than I might from someone, you know, so all of that gives yeah. us new language to begin to explore all these things. And that's, and that's what Jesus calls out with the Pharisees constantly. He's all, you're doing all of these good actions, quote unquote, um, but they're far from me. Mm. Like the, the things in which you doing, you're doing aren't actually for the goodness of others and for relationship. It's for control. And I think that's one of the biggest critiques of, of the church, like the American church today is that space of how do we use um, our faith systems? How do we use our, our doctrines of you must believe this? How do we use like, well, I'm a good person because I do this and this and this and this and this um, to actually create control and break down relationship? And how is our, how are our churches, how are our practices actually moving us away from what it means to be human? Um, because there are like oftentimes within church, it's like, well, I go to church on Sundays and I tithe and I do this and this and this. And, um, and, and yet there's not life there. There's not relational vulnerability there. Like I do all of these things to assure myself of 
of a, an eternal ticket um, as opposed to, no, I'm doing these things because there's life here. Mm. I love but it. It makes me think of uh, just a quick, uh, the, the story of like, well, who is my neighbor? Um, there's something really fascinating in this. And cause I'll look at it through, um, to a little JUC here, um, as, is that at the time you had two competing, uh, rabbinic factions, you had Hillel and you had Shammai and Shammai was very like legalistic Jews only. Like we, all of the laws is out of like this protection of the Jewish community. And you had Hillel who was a bit more open, a bit more like letting others in, um, a bit more spirit of the law versus letter of the law. And so you have uh, this person come up to Jesus and he's just like, uh, and the question of like, well, who is my neighbor? Um, and, and Jesus kind of goes into the story of the good Samaritan and talks about uh, it, which ultimately pushes the person to say uh, that the Samaritans are, are, is the neighbor in that story. And it's this interesting thing in recognizing that, in some sense, it's this question of like, which school do you fall in? Like, again, what's the control? What's the safety? Like, who can I love and who can I be in relationship with that leaves me feeling safe? And are there people that I can exclude because I, I hate them? Like mm -hmm. Jews hated Samaritans um, or they're unfamiliar to me. Like, what are their boundaries of my love? Like, if, if I enter into another culture and I don't understand them, are they not, can I treat them not as my neighbor? Because I like, that's scary. <laughs> and, and so it's this sense of almost like, so what school do you fall in? Like, do you fall in with Shammai in the sense of like, no, your neighbor is just the Jews because they're safe. Um, or, or do you fall in the school of Hillel? Um, which Hillel in is, is the school of everyone is your neighbor except for the Samaritans. So even Hillel, Hillel's history is the space of, of open arms, but there's still permission for hatred and removal of relationship with this one people. So it's, it's fascinating for Jesus to then tell the story of the Good Samaritan, which actually calls out, it's just like these two schools of thought, both aren't going far enough. <laughs> like you cannot limit your love to those who are safe, uh, to those who are familiar. And you can't, you can't open your love up to everyone and, and leave a certain faction out. Um, to really embody what it means to be human, to really embody what it means to, to commune with the divine and the divine in you, the, the Imago Dei, the image of God in you, is an open love and vulnerability of being a neighbor to everyone, including the ones you hate. And so going back even in our conversation earlier, of like the, the division and bifurcation of our culture today is like, how do we embody that vulnerable love uh, with within the political spectrum if you find yourself on the left how do you vulnerably love uh those on the right rather than giving yourself permission of by saying like nah i'm allowed to hate them because of what they stand for and if you find yourself on the right how do you vulnerably love and join with those on the left without demonizing them and making them subhuman which is what the jewish culture did with samaritans like they weren't human that's what gave them the permission to hate without bounds. 
Well, that is a lot, I think, for people to chew on in a really good, good way. Um, some really uh, challenging things there. So I, I appreciate that. And, and just to, to honor everyone's time and your time, especially, I could keep talking about that forever. But, you know, yeah, I, would be, I would be <laughs> remiss if I didn't at least ask you here about two things at the end. One is Dear Heart. And two is the secret coffee shop. So just real quick, tell us about how you guys chose your, your band and what you guys do and if it plays into what we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, so my band is Dear Heart. That's D-E-A-R Heart. Uh, it's the term of affection, not, not an animal's heart. Um, <laughs> And I mean, it started as a, as an acoustic project that then became a, a band. Um, we're kind of a nostalgia late nineties emo band with a bit progressive modern touch, but, um, I mean, it's definitely an outlet for my therapy, um, as an emo band to kind of access those emotions. We're working on a new album at the moment that it kind of plays with that interplay of that hope, like the concept of hope and hope being a double-edged sword that, Hope can pull you out of depression. Hope can can give you like a bodily trust that there's something better in the future. But hope can also throw you into depression if you hope for something that can never come. Hmm. And so it's that that space of like how do you how do you hold hope well? Um, and we're based in Seattle, so check us out. Um, and I you guys did an, it's you fun. did an amazing cover of, um, oh, what was the name of the song now? Um, stop in the name of love. Yeah, stop in the name of love, the black and white, everything. So I'll, I'll have to put a link to that in the show notes so people can go check that out. And tell me about the secret coffee bar as well. Uh, so the secret coffee bar is called The Den Coffee and Co. Because why settle for a coffee company when you can have coffee and company uh <laughs> hey. it's just, it's my stupid slogan um but it's it's really just uh my home home coffee shop uh i have a, a habit of buying pretty much any brewing apparatus i can find so it's just fun the 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 uniqueness that each different brewing apparatus kind of pulls from the beans um are or are speak of me my uh, signature drink is a whiskey chai. So like a chai tea nice. latte, but with some whiskey in it that, and it's, it's phenomenal this morning. I actually smoked my coffee. So uh, a cocktail smoker. And so smoked the decanter and then, uh, did a pour over coffee into it and then smoked it again on top. So it's, it's Whoa. like drinking coffee next to a campfire. Um, if you want a, a, a cocktail smoker, Sutherland fog, my my friend just launched a, a candle and cocktail smoker. Oh, nice! Two two really opposite things, but the smoker's great. And that is fascinating. Um, and community yeah. building again, right? It kind of returns in a way to that, a way around making space for people to draw close around something like a cup of coffee or hey, I love chai tea latte, so a whiskey chai. I'm gonna have to try that sometime. It's it's phenomenal. But I mean, even going back to the very start, like Steve does a lot of things. Like I, yeah. I'm definitely motivated to create spaces for connection. Like yeah. 
everything, like whether it is like, well, okay, let's make a little home coffee shop and have little branded cups. So when you come here, I can send you, send you away with a, a den coffee branded latte um, or the band or theology on tap or um, really anything is the space of like, I really find value and truth in like, we are made to be with each other in relationship in connection. So anything that I can do to, to create those spaces, to invite people into that awareness and that life-giving goodness, like I'm all for. Amen to that. Well, Steve, if people want to go deeper with what you're doing, what you're up to, where can they go? Where can they find you? Where they, where can they connect? Um, well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at the Denler, uh, T H E D E N L E R. Um, I also moved my blog over to medium. The blog's called dirt scribble. Um, from when Jesus kneels down and, and scribbles in the dirt. It's like, what did he do there? It's like, I don't know. Let's, let's muse. Um, so find me on medium, uh, dirt scribble or the Denler, um, and on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. I try, I try to be active on Twitter. That's where, that's where the (laughs) cool kids are. I I hear. Well, Steve, this has been a joy uh, and honor. It's been great to reconnect. Thanks for taking the time. I will drop all those uh, links and everything down below in the description. And yeah, man, really appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good Good to see you and talk with you, Phil. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just wanted to thank you for joining us for this conversation. I do highly recommend you check out those links below to connect more with Steve and the work that he is doing, and then check back next week for part two of our conversation around reframing sin. And then if you're looking for more ways to make space in your life and connect deeper with God, yourself, the present moment, and others, then check out the Rua Space memberships at the link below where we offer Christian yoga, we offer guided prayer, and meditations and more. And at the link below, you can try it for a free trial before you have to make any sort of commitment. So friends, thanks again for being with us here today. We look forward to seeing you in part two. Grace and peace.